You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. If you guys want to go ahead and take your seats uh, and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this evening. Uh, as we continue our series called Twisted Scriptures, uh, where we are looking at verses that are frequently quoted out of context and seeking to put them back into context so we can understand what they actually mean. Uh, Just a heads up for you guys, uh, my intro, my introduction to the text itself is about 20 minutes long this evening, uh, so just settle in and pay attention, but don't worry, I'm not going to preach 40 on top of that introduction, don't worry about that. Um, But even if I did, you've probably all seen the movie Braveheart and it shouldn't matter because that was three and a half hours. But anyway, um, but yeah, so guys, just go ahead and settle in and uh, pay attention as best you can. But let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, by your word, we are preserved. Lord, I ask that, that you would bless me this evening as I preach. I am a, I'm a weak man, and these people have not assembled to hear what I think, but they've assembled to hear you speak. So I pray that you'd speak through your word, by your Holy Spirit this evening, and aid me in my preaching. Lord, please bless all of us who sit under the ministry of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so you guys have all heard it said before, I'm sure, or at least most of you, I'm sure, that God won't give you more than you can handle. Right? Raise your hand. Have you heard that one? God won't give you more than you can handle. Yeah. Right? Have you guys seen that goofy thing on Facebook? It's a meme. I love them. Uh, it's a picture of like a soldier, and it says, God gives his hardest battles to his toughest soldiers. Have you seen that? Help us, Lord. That is horrid. Horrible. I, sorry. I, just can't, I can't stand that. But it's the same concept that God won't put you through a trial that you can't take and that you're strong enough to endure it, um, that you're a strong soldier. And that's a really popular phrase, right? That phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. Uh, and people take that idea, that concept, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And they think that they're just paraphrasing what the Apostle Paul says in that verse. Right? When, when people say, God won't give you more than you can handle, generally, they, they mean that God won't allow you to suffer or go through some kind of trial that you can't handle, right? Some kind of hardship in this life, whether it be sickness or suffering or the suffering of someone else in your family, um, that, that you'll be able to handle that uh, and you're strong enough to do that or God wouldn't put it on you. Uh, and that is just manifestly false. Uh, it's just nonsense. It contradicts the scriptures and that's certainly not what Paul is saying here. And let me back that up with the, I want to go ahead and refute this before we actually get into the text itself. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul suffered a lot. If you want to get like a a snapshot of all of his suffering, read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 sometimes. Um, Paul was beaten and shipwrecked. Uh, People denied that he was an apostle, disrespected. He was hated by uh, Jew and Gentile alike. He was sick often, poor, found himself hungry, without food, uh, was in constant distress. Right? So there's lots of stuff, lots of hardship throughout his life. But the question is, was it ever too much for Paul to handle? Right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if people would just flip a few pages over from 1 Corinthians 10, they would see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul literally says here that he was burdened beyond his strength in 2 Corinthians, right? In other words, Paul was given more than he could handle, right? Um, but this was done, Paul says. He says he was given more than he could handle. He was given more suffering than he could bear in his own strength so that he would rely on the power of God who would sustain him through the pain, okay? God that would sustain him through the trial by his own power. So, just real quick, yes, God will absolutely allow us to go through more than we can handle, right? Absolutely will. That's actually how he grows us in our faith, right? That we might learn how to rely on him and his power and learn to seek strength from him and not from our own strength, okay? So Paul is not telling us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that, that God's not going to lay more, more trial or suffering on you than you can handle. God will intentionally put more on you than you can handle so that you look to him. But as we'll see in a bit, as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or chapter 10 verse 13 in context, we'll see that that verse actually comes as a comfort to the believer who is tempted to sin and fall away from Christ. That verse itself, verse 13 of chapter 10, contains three references to temptation. And in it, Paul says that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. That God won't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to resist. And not only that, Paul also says that God promises to provide us a way of escape so that we can endure the temptation and not fall into sin. Now, a word about the text for this evening and the reason why my introduction is so long. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 actually comes as an encouragement and a conclusion to a larger passage. Like I said, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. It's the conclusion to a larger passage. And in that passage that we're going to look at this evening, there is actually a warning. This passage is a warning passage. And if you don't know what that is, here's how I would define it. A warning passage is a text of Scripture where professing Christians are warned to not fall away from the faith. Where we're warned to not apostatize. Right, there's your $5 word for the evening. We're warned to not go apostate. To not fall away from Christ. And in passages like this, God's wrath, and when I say God's wrath, I mean hell, condemnation from God, is often threatened. And those who profess faith in Christ are encouraged to hold fast to the faith and keep on guard from falling into sin and eventually falling away from Christ entirely. And the most famous warning passage, if you want to study in your own time, is Hebrews chapter 6. Right? But these kinds of passages... These warning passages are stern and scary, right? If you've ever stu if you've not stumbled across them, hopefully you're reading through whole books of the Bible, but if you've ever come across a warning passage, it kind of stops you for a minute and it makes you very uncomfortable because God is threatening you with condemnation should you fall away. But no matter how uncomfortable they might make us, these passages are not to be ignored whatsoever. They're not to be ignored, whether Calvinist or Arminian, whatever. Do not ignore these warning passages. God gives warnings to his people for a reason, and he is not in the business of idle threats. Okay, he's serious whenever he warns. And if you're here and you're uh, in the Reformed camp, right, if you're part of that tribe, you're probably thinking, well, we don't believe that a real Christian can fall away from Christ. 
Right? We don't believe that a real Christian can fall away from their salvation. And you're right. You're absolutely right. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. All right? And that's a blessed doctrine. It's the P on tulip. Right? It's, the, it's the final of the five points of Calvinism. One of my favorite doctrines. But this is where I want to make a distinction between two doctrines that sound the same on the surface, but are in reality radically different from one another. And those two doctrines are eternal security versus the perseverance of the saints. Right? Now, some people like to use them interchangeably, but I don't like to do that. Right? But we're going to make a distinction. But what, they both look a little bit alike on the surface because both of those doctrines, eternal security and perseverance of the saints, both of them say that those who place their faith in Christ can never fully and finally fall away from him. That those who trust in Christ will never go to hell and they belong to God. Both say that, eternal security and perseverance of the saints. But if I could give you a description of eternal security, it, it, the system looks something like this. You come forward, right? you come to an altar or whatever, what have you, and you make a decision for Christ. You're familiar with that kind of terminology. You make a decision for Christ, and you pray the sinner's prayer or whatever, and you ask Jesus into your heart, whatever that means, because that phrasing is not found in the scriptures. But you ask Jesus into your heart, and once you're saved, you're always saved. Right? You guys are familiar with this. You've heard this. Come forward, repeat after me, pray the prayer, and you're saved, and now you're saved forever. And basically, once you've asked Jesus to forgive you, you are forgiven, period, and nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever change that. And you can actually leave that church service and go and live like the devil for the rest of your life, and God can't take your salvation away because you said the magic words. You asked Jesus into your heart, so go live like the devil. Now it doesn't matter. In that view of eternal security, salvation is basically boiled down to just saying magic words and then you're set. And a lot of people in our area think this way. A lot of people get the doctrine of perseverance of the saints twisted to their own damnation. I've talked to many people in the store that I work at. Hey, man, I fear for your soul. You live like a pagan. Buddy, you don't need to worry about me. I was saved when I was 10. And I was baptized the next week. I'm set. Living in rampant sin. And he looks at me and he says, once saved, always saved. That view is a lie from the pit of hell. On the other hand, we see perseverance of the saints, which is the biblical doctrine of a Christian not being able to lose their salvation. And in this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints that we see throughout the scriptures, this doctrine says that when someone is converted to Christ, they are born again of the Holy Spirit. And in that new birth, in that regeneration, they're given a new nature by God that now has the gift of faith in Christ and now desires to obey God. And since they've been converted by God and have been given this new nature and grace from God, they will persevere in faith, obedience, and repentance when they sin. They will persevere if they've been converted by God. Now, a Christian may fall into sin. And when I say sin, I mean horrible, horrible sin. A Christian can do awful things. And, and a Christian might stay in that sin for a long season, right? maybe even years. But if they have really been converted by God, they will eventually turn back to Christ and repent and believe on Him and then live in faith and obedience. If they've really been converted... And if someone falls away from Christ and never comes back, they never belong to him in the first place. If they die in their unrepentant sin, they never knew him. 
So instead of once saved, always saved, I always like to counter people and say, no, 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 no. If saved, always saved. Where's your perseverance? Where's your perseverance? So we see that perseverance is really the thing that distinguishes someone who is actually saved from someone who merely professes to be a Christian. Perseverance is the thing that matters. And those who actually belong to Christ will persevere in faith, obedience, and repentance until the end. Either until they die or until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But don't believe me, right? Let's look at the text. Let's look at something the Bible says about the necessity for perseverance. In Mark chapter 13, verse 13, the Lord Jesus says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who perseveres will be saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, the, same, the very same letter we're going to be looking at this evening, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, professing Christians, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Meaning, unless your profession of faith was in vain. If you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, you will be saved. And in these passages that we just read, those two, and many more, I might add, we see that true believers are the ones who persevere. They are the ones who stay on guard against sin and stay on guard against falling away from Christ. They are the ones who keep believing and keep repenting and keep following Christ. And also, just so you guys don't think that I'm flirting with Arminianism here, um, I, I don't believe that Christians do this in their own strength. Christians do not persevere by their own strength. What Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So why do you persevere? Because you've been converted by God and by his Holy Spirit, he continues to work faith and repentance and obedience in you. And even if you stray, the Spirit works in you to bring you back. It's still not in your own strength. It's still the work of God. But nevertheless, our human responsibility is to persevere in the faith. But why a warning passage then? Right? If those who belong to God will persevere and not fall away entirely, then why does God warn us? in the Bible, to not fall away, right? Like, what's the purpose of that then? You ever ask that question? Like, if I can't lose my salvation, then why does God warn me not to fall away? Here's your answer. God, in his holy wisdom, not only declares the ends, right? He's sovereign. He declares who will be saved. Not only does he declare your salvation, but he also declares the means or methods and instruments by which he will ensure our perseverance. He not only declares that you'll be saved, but he says, and here's how I'm going to preserve them so they persevere. And one of those means that God has ordained is that he would warn us and threaten us to not fall away. That's one of his means that preserves us and gives us perseverance, is that he would threaten us to not fall away. And that might seem strange, right? It's pretty counterintuitive, but this is what pleased God to do. And this is actually a grace for us. Because even if we're not fully straying from God, even if we've not fallen into apostasy, whenever we read these warning passages, God is calling us to repentance and watchfulness and godliness. So it's all around good for the believer to read these warning passages. And one last thing. This is the big thing. 
those who actually belong to God, those who have actually been converted by Christ, will heed the warning. Those who actually belong to God will actually heed the warning to not fall away. And as we listen to His warnings and threats and are given a godly fear by them, we will be preserved from falling away. But those who do not truly belong to God and have merely made a profession of faith, but they have not been converted in their soul, they will arrogantly think that these warnings don't apply to them, and they will continue on living however they please, not caring about sin, not caring about repentance, and not caring about perseverance. And in the end, such a person will go to hell. Such a person will perish. So God preserves His people by His warnings. Okay, so let's take this text to heart and then be encouraged by a promise of grace to sustain temptations so that we don't fall away. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right, so the people that Paul was writing this letter to were professing Christians. All right, just a little bit of background before we get into this. They were professing Christians. They were part of the church in Corinth. Right? They were people who had made a profession of faith in Christ and had been baptized in Jesus' name, or rather in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They had been baptized into Christ's name. They, had take, they take the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. They go to church on Sundays. They sit under the ministry of the Word. They had seen miracles in their church. They had seen lots of stuff. Right? They were certainly professing Christians. And yet, in spite of all of these privileges of sitting under the ministry of the word, right, being a part of the visible church community, in spite of all these privileges, they had begun to live like pagans. Most of them were Gentiles in the church of Corinth, and they had come from living in a pagan worldview to a Christian one, but they had begun to live like pagans again. They had fallen back into their old way of living. And some of the things that we can read if you, if you take some time and read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. It's incredibly relevant to the church in America. But some of the things that we read about them doing is, that, is they were taking part in idolatrous feasts at the local temple. 
They were committing gross acts of sexual immorality. Um, one man with his stepmother, uh, a, a bunch of men with uh, temple prostitutes in Corinth. Uh, they were abusing their Christian liberty. Right? That's another one. God help us. They were abusing their Christian liberty. They were using the grace of God as a license to sin. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, so let's live how we want. They were using their Christian liberty as sin, and in doing so, they were leading other weaker Christians into sin and back into paganism. Like I said a minute ago, they were living like they once did before they professed faith in Christ. Only now, they're bearing the name of Christ as they do so. And in spite of how they were living, in open rebellion against God, in spite of how they were living, they were confident that everything is okay with them. Paul calls them arrogant in this letter. They thought that everything was okay between them and God, even though they were living in such a sinful way. They were arrogant, and they thought... We can, can get from this passage we just read. They were thinking, okay, since we've professed faith in Christ and been baptized and take the supper and have some knowledge of doctrine, right? They reference their own knowledge here and there throughout the letter. Um, since they have some knowledge of doctrine and since they've seen miracles, that they're all good to go. And how they live doesn't matter. They thought it did not matter how they lived and that since they belonged to the visible church and were members of the church, that God didn't care how they lived. In other words, you could look at it like this. They started well with a profession of faith and baptism and coming to church. They started well, but now they had fallen into their old lives. And they think foolishly that they are sinning with impunity. And in light of this, Paul begins his warning. And we're going to walk through this text. Paul begins his warning in verses 1 through 4. So they're sinning. They think everything's okay. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. You need to know something. That our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses and the cloud and sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Paul wants to remind them that Israel started out well too. Israel started out very well, right? And this is a reference to when God brought them out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. Paul's telling them, hey, in a sense, Israelites were baptized too. He said they were baptized into Moses whenever they crossed through the Red Sea. He says, in a sense, they were baptized as well. And they had also received a form of the Lord's Supper, right? Spiritual food and spiritual drink. They had had manna from heaven and water from the rock in the desert. They had had a form of the Lord's Supper as well. And we know that the Israelites certainly would have professed to believe in Yahweh, right? The one true God. They had seen awesome miracles, right? They had seen the ten plagues of Egypt, the Red Sea split, the, the pillar of fire and cloud. They had seen all of these miracles. Israel had received so much blessing from God. They had been privileged to see all of this. They were visibly part of God's people. They had started well, and yet... Not everything was good with all of them. Many of them fell under God's wrath. It's striking. We don't expect, it. We don't expect to hear that. What Paul is doing whenever he starts talking about Israel is he's drawing parallels between Israel and the Corinthians. Right? He wants them to see the danger that they're in. Paul wants them to see that there are a lot of similarities between the Corinthians and the Israelites and to see that what happened with Israel would happen to them too. That if they continued to live morally, lax lives, doing things that God hates, if they continue to live in unrepentant sin and keep refusing to keep a close watch on how they're living, that they too would fall under God's condemnation. 
So Paul continues in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That in spite of their profession and their baptism and participation in corporate worship, God was not pleased with many of the Israelites. Then many of them were overthrown. That word overthrown means laid low. The, the Greek word means like their bodies were scattered under the condemnation of God in the wilderness. That God mowed them down. They were destroyed by God. They had started well, but they ended up being struck down by God because they fell back into their old sinful ways of living. And I think, along with Matthew Henry and John Calvin, if that means anything to you, I think that their being struck down by God in the wilderness is a physical symbol of the spiritual reality that they went to hell. And I'm not talking about every Israelite that died in the wilderness. I'm talking about the ones that Paul's going to give us examples that God intentionally struck them down. Right? That they were under God's condemnation. Their physical deaths under God's, the angel of death or the serpents that got them, that those physical deaths as an immediate result of God's wrath was a sign that they died under God's condemnation. They didn't really belong to him. It's always a good warning to us to remember that not everyone who is part of the visible community of God's people actually belong to God. That not everyone who's a member of a church actually belongs to Christ. Only those who have been genuinely converted belong to God. And that's what Paul is drawing out from this example of people who started well, but they were destroyed. They did not persevere. They fell away. In verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So he says, These things happened to Israel so that we could have an example. He repeats himself again in verse 11 with the same thing. An example to us. And what's the example? What are we being taught? Don't do what they did. It's simple. I mean, seriously, like, sometimes the Bible is not exactly a mystery. That's the, that, that's the example to us. Don't do what they did. In Israel's falling into apostasy and being destroyed, God is teaching us something. To fear Him. To fear Him and stay, stay tight with Him. Stay close to Him. And to hate sin. To hate it. To view it as destructive. Verse 6 says, so that we might not desire evil. That's why God allowed this to happen to the Israelites. That we would be instructed. That we would not find sin appealing. That we wouldn't even want it after seeing the condemnation that came upon others. If they were struck down and fell under the condemnation of God, what good is sin then? What does it profit us to live in sin if they fell under God's condemnation? That's the example. That's what we're being instructed with. God is teaching us to run from sin entirely. What will it profit you in the end? And in threatening us with wrath, should we fall away, God is putting fear into us that should take away all pleasure from sin. That we wouldn't even desire it. That we might learn, please hear me on this, that we might learn to kill our sinful desires as they rise up in your chest. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? That looks good, and I know that I shouldn't. To kill it then. To not entertain the idea of sinning. To think on your past life and say, man, that was fun. Kill it then. 
Don't let yourself go back in your mind to the pleasures of those sins. That we wouldn't entertain the idea of sinning. That we would kill the desire as soon as it comes up. That we would be reminded of the wrath of God against those who fall away. Israel is our example and we would be foolish to ignore it. However God dealt with them is how he's going to deal with us. He is a God that doesn't change. God wants us to take seriously this idea of falling away. Okay, we must never presume upon God's grace and live in sin. Please hear me on that, Calvinist, especially if you're new to the tribe. Don't, don't presume upon God's grace because we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and He will preserve us and persevere. Don't presume upon His grace and provoke Him to wrath. Don't test Him. Your profession of faith and your baptism and taking communion, none of that will save you. It is only true possession of faith that manifests itself in perseverance that saves And Paul then goes on to give an account of the things that the Israelites did so that we might avoid the same sin. Verses 7 through 10, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now hear me. All of the sins listed there really deserve their own treatment at length. I would argue for us, especially testing Christ, which means that what can I get away with? How far can I get away from him without completely abandoning him? Right, you know what I'm talking about. That, that needs treated on its own sometime for us, I think. But we don't have time for all that tonight. But there's one big theme running through all of these sins that Paul just mentioned. Right? In all of these things, there is one big connection, and it's this. Israel was going back to how they once lived in Egypt. In their hearts, they were turning back to their former idolatry and their former patterns of living. Either by word or by action or in their heart, they were turning back to Egypt. Just briefly, in idolatry. He mentions idolatry, which is a reference to Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf incident. Right? You guys are familiar with that. The people of Israel had not been out of Egypt for very long at all. They had just formally made covenant with God and said, we will do whatever you tell us to do. And then they go up to Aaron, Moses' brother, and say, Aaron, make for us gods. Make gods for us, Aaron. And Aaron made them a golden calf. And they worshipped it. Why? Why did they do that? Because that's what they would have done in Egypt. That's what they would have done in Egypt. They went back to their old way of living. They turned back in their actions and God struck them down. He says, don't commit sexual immorality, which is a reference to Numbers 25, as best we can tell, where the men of Israel engaged in a pagan ceremony to a false god. And in that pagan ceremony, they had sex with foreign women. It was an act of idolatry. Again, they were turning away from God and toward a false god named Baal Peor. Right? They were turning away to another false god. They were turning back to idolatry. The third thing Paul mentions is putting Christ to the test, which is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, where the people complained about God's provision, and they didn't believe, and they didn't believe God's promises to them that life with God in the wilderness was better than their former life of slavery and idolatry. And they didn't believe Him. And they turned back to Egypt in their hearts. And the fourth thing mentioned was grumbling, which is a reference to Numbers chapter 14, where the people said it was better in Egypt. 
it was better before Yahweh rescued them. Their life of sin and slavery was better. It was easier. And some of them were actually looking to get a new leader for themselves so they could go back. And again, they were turning away from God and seeking to go back to their former lives. They were seeking to go back to their slavery. They were seeking to live apart from God. And God struck them. They fell under the just condemnation of God. Even after they had started so well and seen so much, they fell away. They were like the seed that fell among thorns in Christ's parable of the sower. They seemed to belong to God for a time, and they shot up quickly. But then the cares of this life and sinful desires of the flesh choked them out, and they were destroyed. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come, has come. Paul reminds us again that these were recorded for us. Their instances of going back to their old way of living and desiring their former sins were recorded for our instruction so that we would not fall like they did. It was recorded so that we would be reminded of their condemnation and the wrath of God so that we would not desire our old lives so that we would not live presuming upon God's grace. Well, I can just go ahead and do this sin. God will forgive me anyway, right? I know the doctrines. It doesn't really matter, right? So that we would stay away from that foolishness and so that we would see the necessity of abstaining from sin and persevering in faithfulness to Christ. That's why it was recorded for us. So let me just take a beat here and plead with you. Let me plead with you for a moment. Please do not be so foolish. Don't be so foolish. Please don't make the same kind of mistakes that Israel did. Don't look back at your former sins and God help us because we're all guilty of it. I talk with you. I do it myself sometimes. Do not look back at your former sins with any kind of gladness. Don't look back at your former sins or how you used to live before you knew Christ with any kind of longing to go back. Don't look back on your former life and think, oh, how pleasurable that was. But look at it and see, I was under condemnation from God. I was a slave to my sin and without Christ in the world. I was hopeless. Don't look back at your old way of living and think that it was pleasurable. Don't look to the ways of the world and its entertainments and its norms and its pleasures and desire them. Please see, see that what God offers you in Christ is better he offers you eternal life. He offers you a life filled with grace now. He offers you actual joy, right? A supernatural contentment and peace that the pleasures of sin cannot provide. And if you're honest with yourself, whenever you think of your former life of sin, you were not filled with joy. Sin promises things to you that it cannot deliver on. So see that Christ is enough and that your former lives were nothing but slavery and misery that ends with eternal punishment. See that and stay on course. See that and cling to the cross of Christ. And if you can't see that, if you can't see that, then feel the weight of God's threats. If you can't see that God's blessing is so much better than your sin, then I want you to fear God. Fear His wrath and condemnation. 
And I thank God that when his promises of blessings don't rein us in, he threatens us so that we might stay close to him through fear. If his kindness won't draw you to him, fear of him will keep you at his side. See that what he offers is better and fear him. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. I'll be as plain as I can with you. Here's what Paul's saying. If you arrogantly think that you are secure in your salvation, and that everything is okay between you and God, while you live a life of open rebellion to God, take heed to what happened to the Israelites, or you will fall under God's condemnation as well. If you think you'll be saved because you started well and you made a profession and you were baptized and you take communion and you come to church but you flirt with the world and live like you once did, you better fear the wrath of God because you're going to fall. That's Paul's warning here. How dare we think that God will deal with us differently than he dealt with the Israelites? How dare we think that God has changed? I am the Lord and I change not. He is the same. He does not change. His dealings remain the same. Now before you guys misunderstand me, or even misunderstand Paul, we know this, that Paul is the chief apostle of teaching that God's people will certainly be saved. Read Galatians. Read the book of Romans. Especially Romans chapter 8. Paul is the chief apostle on those who belong to God will be saved. But Paul never once thought that how he lived didn't matter. Right? The verse directly before chapter 10 starts. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Why? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul wholeheartedly believes that those who have been converted will be saved, but he still kept a close watch on himself and was disciplined and didn't give in to every sinful desire. He fought his sin. Why? Because he didn't want to preach the message of salvation to others and then miss it himself. He knew that he had to persevere. He knew that he had to remain faithful or he would fall away. And one last note on this, and we're going to get into verse 13 in a minute. Don't let your understanding of election minimize this warning because I know what some of you might be doing because it's what I used to do in my own foolishness where you say, well, I've studied the Bible enough to know that the elect will be saved and they cannot fall away and I am elect. And you're right. The elect of God cannot finally and fully fall away but it is the elect who persevere. Don't ever forget that. It's the elect who persevere. And furthermore, you don't know whether or not you're elect unless you persevere, you fool. I'm just keeping it real, man. So hear me. Don't try to outsmart God with your theology. Don't twist his holy word to your own destruction, as some were doing even in the first century, according to what Peter says. Don't take what Paul says and twist it to your own damnation. Heed the warning of God. Repent. Fear him. Now, Paul knows that he has just given a stern warning. Right? Paul knows how stern this warning just is, just like I do because I had to preach it with the same tone that Paul, write, Paul wrote with. 
And please hear me before we go any further. If you're someone who's striving for obedience to Christ and you're trusting in Christ and you're living a life of faith and obedience and repentance and you know that you're a wretch and you know that only Christ can save you so you cling to his cross, I am not trying to make you doubt your assurance of salvation ever. Far be it from me or anyone else to ever make you doubt your assurance, to ever make you doubt your pardon from sin, to ever make you doubt that you belong to God through Christ. That's not what I'm trying to do. If you're someone who strives for obedience and faith and repentance, this warning is actually not even for you. But Paul knows that he's just given a stern warning. And he knows that people may be thinking maybe what you're thinking. And that's this. You tell me not to fall away, but I'm not strong enough to withstand temptation. You ever been there? You see these warnings not to fall, and you say, I'm not strong enough, I'm weak. How do I know that I won't fall away? It happened to them. How do I know it won't happen to me? I don't want to fall away like some of the Israelites did, but I'm not strong. Paul encourages us in verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. First thing he says is whatever temptation that we have to fall into sin, Paul says it is common. It's common. That means that other believers have been tempted the same way that we are. Other believers, faithful men and women of God, have been tempted with the same sins. They've been tempted to fall back into their former lives just like we are. He's reminding us that our temptation to sin is not unique. It's common and it's normal. Other believers have had to endure these temptations. And guess what? Other believers have overcome the same temptations and not fallen into sin. This is encouraging. Other people have been tempted like you are and remain faithful to Christ. Think of Daniel, right? Daniel in the lion's den. Commit a gross act of idolatry and pray to the king or we will feed you to a lion. What does he do? He continues to pray to God. He's faithful. If you're tempted to fall back into sexual immorality, consider Joseph in Genesis. Potiphar's wife throws herself at Joseph, and Joseph flees and runs. He overcomes temptation. If you fear what people think and you're afraid to live your life of faith in public, which is sin, I might add, and you fear man, consider Rahab, who hid the Israelite spies, knowing that if the city officials found out, she would be killed. But she was faithful. If you're tempted to go back to your life and return to your symbolic slavery in Egypt, consider Moses, who, though he sinned, Never turned back. Never turned back and remained faithful. Or if you're tempted to not believe God, if you're tempted to not believe His promises towards you, if you're tempted to not believe His word as you read the scriptures, remember Joshua and Caleb, who out of all of the, all of the Israelites in the wilderness were the only two aside from Moses who believed God's promise of Canaan. They believed and they pressed on. The list could go on and on. But believers have been tempted to sin, and yet by God's grace, they persevered and remained faithful. And if they did that, so can we. Right? If you're a Christian, you have the same indwelling Holy Spirit that they had to enable you to remain faithful. There are no super believers. The same Spirit that dwelled in Moses and Caleb and Joshua and Rahab and Daniel and Joseph dwells in you to enable faithfulness in you. In other words, you don't have to fall. Praise God, this is encouraging for us. This is a promise of grace. 
Other people have been tempted like you're being tempted. They remain faithful. The same grace of God dwells within you. But maybe you're thinking this, I'm not as strong as them. I'm not as strong as these mighty men and women of the faith. What about me? I'm weak. Hear me on this, please. Our ability to withstand temptation doesn't come from ourselves. Your ability to withstand sin and temptation does not come from you. What does Paul say immediately after common to man? God is faithful. God is faithful. Hear me, Christian. God is your God and will not forsake you in your time of temptation regardless of what the temptation is. He will sustain you. He is faithful to you and will not leave you to your own strength. All we have to do is look to Him and ask for help and He promises to give us grace. Brothers and sisters, God has made covenant with you through the blood of His Son and He promises to give you aid when you're in need. He promises this. God will not hand you over to temptation and then forsake you. He is not a cruel father. To those who are tempted, who belong to Him, He will be faithful to you. God is faithful. And not only is God faithful, but from that faithfulness we see that He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. God is sovereign, right? We know this. God is sovereign even over your temptation, is what Paul is saying. God is sovereign over your temptation. And He will not allow one of His children to be tempted beyond what they are able to resist by His grace. This means that no matter what the temptation is, no matter how awful or how great the temptation might be for us to fall back into our old lives, God promises that the temptation is not so strong that we can't resist. In other words, you can indeed resist. You can indeed overcome literally any temptation that comes your way if you will cooperate with the grace of God in you and look to Him for strength. That's what He's saying here. God will make certain that the temptation, even if it is strong, is not so strong that you have to fall. He'll make sure it's weak enough that you can overcome. And with the temptation, He says that He will provide the way of escape. Which doesn't mean that he'll remove the temptation from you or put you in a different situation. No. He says to provide the way of escape so we can endure. So we can endure. The way of escape here means the way through. Again, so that we might endure. That we might persevere through the temptation. So God promises here to give grace to us as we're tempted to sin and fall away. So that we might remain faithful. All we have to do is press into the grace of God and resist. What's James say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the temptation to sin and by God's grace you will overcome. That's what Paul's telling us here. So God warns us not to fall and then God promises us the grace to withstand the temptation to fall and go back into sin. (laughs) He says don't fall. Oh yeah, I'm also giving you the grace so that you won't. This is beautiful. Where God gives a command, He promises the grace to obey. And that's the promise in verse 13. God will sustain His people. We need only to look to Him. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. But by God's grace, we can and will persevere. 
So in conclusion, let us fight our sin. Let us fight our sin and resolve to persevere. Hear me, if you're, if you're someone here who has fallen into some sin, whether it be big or, whether, or small or grievous, whatever it might be, if you've fallen into some old pattern of living, the call here is clear. Repent. Repent. And renew your faith in Christ and be forgiven. And then continue on in faith. The call here is to repent and persevere. Please hear me, God has grace for those who have fallen. Look at King David. An adulterer who had the adulteress's wife murdered and lived in that sin for the better part of a year. And what happened? When confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet, he repented and God forgave him immediately. David had fallen worse than most of us have. Consider the apostle Peter who committed apostasy and said, I don't know Christ. I don't know the man. And at the end of John's gospel, we see Peter restored by the same Christ he had denied. There's grace for the fallen Christian. What matters is that we repent and continue to trust Christ. So may God grant his people repentance. And may we heed this warning to not fall away and cling more closely to our Savior and his atoning work. And may we continue on in the faith, trusting God's promise to give strength so that we will not fall. Let's fight our sin and resolve to never go back to our old lives, but rather to press on towards our heavenly homeland. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your word given to us. Thank you for the examples that we have from the Old Testament and your dealings with your people under the Old Covenant. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to heed your warning that we might persevere. God, grant us repentance. Hold us close to yourself, whether that might be by your promises of blessing or your threatenings of wrath. Lord, hold us close to you. Because, Lord, if left to our own devices, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Hold us fast to you, God, because if you don't, we will run God, we thank you for the grace that you give us to withstand temptation. Help us to press into that, Lord. And above all things, we thank you for Christ who bore our sin and reconciled us to you. We pray it in his name. Amen.